Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Summary, well, we are uh, we're giving you some updates on nurses and other highlights from, you know, the nonprofit ecosystem. How's it going, Nick? It's going good, George. Happy second week of January 2023. Yeah. Is off to it's off to a start. Well, I got to be in I got to be in New York. I was in New York. I saw the whole whale offices uh, for <laughs> the first time. We work over in Brooklyn, of course, and got to work side by side. Of course, we didn't record a podcast together because that would have made too much sense. But looks like New York uh, New York City's having some trouble, though, with nurses, huh? Yeah, George. <laughs> so, our, exactly right. Our first story this week is that thousands of New York City nurses have gone on strike as hospital and union talks have fallen apart. So, a dramatic last-ditch effort to avert the strike failed this weekend, leading nurses at two New York City hospitals, Montefiore Medical Center and Mount Sinai Hospital. Um so nurses at the ho- those hospitals went on strike at 6 a.m. Eastern on Monday. Among the demands were salary increase, moderate salary increases, as well as demands in relation to health benefits. But in particular, nurses at these two hospitals, which are represented by the New York State Nurses Association Union, they were really advocating for better staffing levels and vet- better, more safer, quite frankly, nurse to patient ratios. This comes on the heels of a pandemic, which has left nurses feeling unfairly treated, burnt out, and most importantly, in the instance of these two hospitals, chronically understaffed. Um, So these two hospitals are nonprofits, but if you're in the New York area, you know Sinai, you know Montefiore. Like New York York is a hospital city for whatever reason. (laughs) There's a ton of hospitals, some of the best hospitals in the country. Um, they employ a ton of people, including these nurses. But um, when major hospitals like this go offline, it puts stress on the whole system. Um, so I think nonprofit medical professionals across the country are going to be paying close attention to how this is resolved. Um, we are recording this on Tuesday. As of today, I think talks have resumed at one of the hospitals, but um, no breakthrough has been reached. A last-ditch attempt by New York Governor Happy Kathy Hochul's push for binding arbitration did not work over the weekend. Um, so as of now, there's no end in sight. George, what's your takeaway for the broader nonprofit audience? I think if you were in anywhere in the healthcare hospital or adjacent fields, you're paying attention to how these workers, the union, are are floating their narratives and paying attention to, will this happen in other cities coming up? Will you have to be prepared as an organization that works with hospitals or providers to, to be ready for, for something like this? I don't know how <laughs> you are prepared for uh, nurses to walk out, which are literally the pun intended lifeblood of a, uh, of a hospital and a healthcare system. I think the the narratives here that I'm I'm kind of watching one side push one, which is, you know, this is about staffing levels. And then other news outlets, I hear the, well, this is, you know, a bunch of nurses want more money. And 
Look, you have brought a lot of attention to this, I think, to me, to, uh, to this podcast, for sure, saying like, look, uh, these staffing levels have been a pervasive issue across the country. Issues, and it stuck out in my mind, are, you know, when literally we have heard nurses, and not saying this was in New York, but nurses needing to call the fire department to come in to support them. So this is a staffing level issue. And, you know, yes, that is a total salary increase, but it's different than an individual there saying, I want 20% more salary. Uh, I think it is about patient care and patient outcomes. So it's dangerous to see, but I, I think it's a, it's a wake up call that hopefully others will, uh, forego the need to go to, to these extremes and instead have the conversations up front about what needs to happen. Yeah, George, I think that's a great synthesis. Um, full disclosure, I live within walking distance of one of these hospitals and know quite a few nurses on the inside. And from their perspective, I can tell you that they genuinely think that they are doing the best thing for their patients. I know nurses have been worried about their ability to provide quality care because they feel that current staffing is actually so far as to not only be unsustainable, but unsafe. And that's the perception of nurses there. Um, of course, hospital administrations have different perceptions, and, and those are important to see as well as, of course, you need two sides to um, an agreement going forward. But um, yeah, we will continue to watch this one. This is kind of breaking news. I believe that uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams and folks in the mayor's office has set up like an emergency control center um, because this is a very big deal but one that we will continue to keep an eye on. I have, I have one more random addition to this. So there's, I was in my mind, but like, uh, what is like the most trusted profession? I was like, it's gotta be either, uh, you know, people that are, are firefighters or nurses. And actually, uh, for apparently, according to the Gallup honesty and ethics poll originating in 1976, uh, conducted every year since, uh, since then it, um, Nurses have ranked number one almost the entire time. The only year they were displaced was after 2001 when firefighters claimed the top spot. So just know when this group of humans who have got the highest rating for ethics and certainly coming off the pandemic, um, pay attention. Uh, pay attention. I just thought that was a fun, fun additional fact. That was, that was good. Good job, George. Very quick. No, an important, an important data point. Um, into the narrative as we talk about it. Shall I take us into the summary? What do we got? All right. Well, this one was reported in multiple outlets, um, but as CNN and others say, a woman was sentenced to three years in state prison for collecting $400,000 in a viral GoFundMe scam. Uh, this story comes courtesy of the great state of New Jersey. I was a resident. I can make fun of it. Um, this woman basically used a, a fake GoFundMe um, to provide money to a homeless veteran who was, in fact, also a scammer in on the scheme um, and managed to raise $400,000 um, for them and their vacations and their properties and their trips to the Grand Canyon. Uh, so quite lucrative, um, but as it turns out, uh, the New Jersey justice system and the feds were less enthused by this scheme. 
George, I know there's a couple threads we wanted to pull on this story. So I'll pass it over to you to do that. On the GoFundMe front, I think when you've got a narrative first environment where the best story wins, not the best organization, not the best cause, the best story, the only consistent winner is the platform. And so when I see this, uh, you know, when we, we call it out, it is a, a reminder of being very sort of careful of donating to that rending of the moment feel good story that sadly, uh, you know, I see take off more often than not, rather than looking at root causes, smart giving, helping the, the actual issue rather than just you know, a, a story that gets picked up. And, and the truth is, it's, it's hard to vet this. So I don't actually mean to cast stones at GoFundMe. I think, you know, it provides a service and that's why it works. That's why people are willing to pay the 2.9% B plus their incense on those transactions. And by the way, at the end of that, also say, would you like to tip? I'll leave a tip at the end of it. So they are offering a service. And it happens to touch on philanthropy, but uh, this is not uh, a vetted marketplace. This isn't making sure that, you know, that that story uh, ends up where it is to. And so this is, you know, just one example uh, of how this can be, can be manipulated for, for fraud. But I, even beyond fraud, just how, how this works, you know, I, I want to kind of double back. So on a, a DeMar Hamlin uh, drive that was again, on GoFundMe. And, you know, thankfully he's, he's doing better. Uh, and actually that, that fundraiser is now up to $8 million, um, which is quite a lot on, on GoFundMe. And as he has now sort of regained uh, consciousness and is, is back, um, you know, back and able to speak and, and watch the games, uh, he, um, it's interesting to see. Uh, how one sort of on the Buffalo Bills site, they're now directing people to uh, give lively and directly to fund the organization. So not pay that fee through GoFundMe and and go that direction, but rather go through a, a different uh, donation vehicle. Uh, and you're also seeing the sort of fact that people thought that, you know, originally this was a toy drive to give to. Uh, and, and in effect, it seems like they're, they're going to more pivot to a, a larger scope, but at the very least, uh, his, um, his current statements talk about raising, uh, money actually for the university of Cincinnati's trauma center, uh, where he was receiving treatment and, you know, kind of interesting selling, selling shirts that say, uh, did we win? Which was his first response when he, he woke up talking to the passion for his, his work as a, as a player in the bills, uh, those shirts to raise money for it. So, you know, not to parse this too carefully, but you have this public intent to give money toward that toy drive. Who knows where that toy drive could have been directed to, right? It just so happens it went to his own foundation. That toy drive could have been going to a Toys for Tots, nothing against them. Suddenly this, you know, this is a great turn of events where he's woken up and be able to say like, actually, let's go here. So what would have happened, right? He would have woken up and been like, oh, whoa, you spent $8 million sending it to Toys for Tots through this thing that was two years old on GoFundMe. You know, it's undirected spending and the ones that net profit on an ongoing basis are, are GoFundMe. Uh, 
So I just, you know, I wanted to, to revisit that and try to play this narrative out as many ways as I can for our audience. I don't know. I, am I pulling this thread too far, Nick? Do I have like some sort of weird axe to grind here? Is this just me being a little, a little weird about it? No, George, I think you, you bring up a good point. I was thinking about this. I mean, we are a social impact digital marketing agency. This is what we do. We, we, our whole existence is to get out the message of amazing organizations doing amazing work. But there's something somewhat uncomfortable with the kind of like Hunger Games attention aspect of like, as you said, the best story wins on GoFundMe. It gets featured on the page. It gets, you know, it goes viral um, in pop culture, right? And I think it brings up kind of interesting ethical questions um, about you know, how we address problems in society and like who is best able to tackle some of the biggest problems. And as we talked about the viral GoFundMe scam, not all of those fundraisers, of course, the overwhelming majority are not scams, but um, you know, the nonprofit sector has spent decades really emphasizing accountability, transparency, ethics, um, Philanthropy is moving towards, you know, uh, equity in terms of diversing you know, funds and, and, and like really important strides in how we approach philanthropy society and making it accountable and effective. And GoFundMe is kind of the opposite, right? But, and I think that there's, there's kind of like a, there's a tension there. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's just very different because it's so, I guess you could say. That's what I'm thinking. It's an interesting question. Well, I'll pull it to something more practical rather than, you know, throwing, throwing stones at macro mean philanthropy. Here's, here's an activity. Go just on a weekly by weekly basis and look at the top trending GoFundMe campaigns and try to find ones that are in and around or adjacent to your organization's mission, purpose, cause. And look at the elements that are involved, right? It's an individual, it's an I level, a me, I person level experience, right? I care about what happened to Jane. I don't care about what happened to, unfortunately, 10,000 Janes. That person's experience in the world, a story with a surprise and a heartwarming or heart-wrenching element to it. And look at those elements and then ask yourself, are there, you know, stories like this in our backyard or are there ways that we can help pull those stories out uh, as narratives, honest narratives? Because nonprofits are doing this work at scale, but the stories happen at that lower level. So maybe it's an exercise for your, your fundraising and marketing team to just browse and look at what is working. Um, I, have to, I have to bring it to something constructive. I, I don't want to, I don't like the, the sort of, hand wringing for, for the sake of hand wringing. No, that's, that's good to bring us back uh, to center to something practical for our listeners. I think it's important, important conversation. All right. Our next story comes from the new humanitarian, which is, we highly recommend this outlet. They report on humanitarian, uh, sector news, but 
The story that they put out is that aid operations have been hit as the Taliban bars Afghan women from working for NGOs. Um, so the report is out of Kabul, Afghanistan. This comes, of course, after the United States withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan in 2021. The fallout continues in the announcement that the Taliban is essentially barring women from working with any local or foreign NGO until further notice. Uh, step in the obvious wrong direction, repressive, ridiculous rule instituted by the Taliban. But the result is that organizations are being forced out. Um, so the International Rescue Committee, Save the Children, the Norwegian Refugee Council, Care International, uh, Islamic Relief, and others have all announced they've had to halt work in the country. Um, from what I've read, it seems that it's kind of a combination of practically, they just cannot continue operations under these laws under risk of arrest. And there is a bit of an ethical component in which um, you just, you know, kind of refusing to work in such conditions. This is a really bad time for such an announcement. Um, Afghanistan is just about one step away from famine. It's one of the most food insecure places on the planet right now. Um, millions of Afghans are dangerously malnourished. Um, and 700,000 people have lost their jobs since the Taliban's return to power in August of 2021. This is a lose-lose situation. Uh, it looks like the, the UN is still operating. Um, but, you know, this hinders operations to vaccinate against polio to deliver food relief. Um, just utterly short-sighted and, and quite frankly, uh, disgusting on behalf of, of the Taliban, um, directly harming its own people. I do two things when I hear stories like this. One, I try to park my Western elitist bias in the corner and say, I've been raised a certain way with certain assumptions on the way things should be. One of those is a level of equality between gender and beyond. This announcement came literally a week after they also said women are to stop all university classes. Um, so, you know, you're, you're bumping up into like, do I believe there's a universal truth out there beyond my own bias? I don't know. I, I feel like maybe probably I, I think that's something we might be able to get on the same page of, but clearly not. The other one is that, uh, as you heat that sort of, you know, that frustration, you feel it in your stomach, I think, right now when you, when you hear this and you feel that rage factor dial up. You have to roll back to who knocked over the first domino. And frankly, it is a pension and culture of war in this country to intervene where we shouldn't, to bring military might where we should have brought diplomacy. We did it in the wrong way. And I got to say, like, I would redirect that to the next time you think, like, us jumping into a war and intervening like that rage should have been applied to like, maybe we shouldn't do this because there are unintended consequences. Um, so I, I look at the dominoes that fell and I got to say, like, I get that the Taliban are doing this now, but if I'm playing back the, the tape and history, are they in a different place where maybe the culture evolved in a different way and we're in a different footing with regard to how they were pushing back on their culture? Uh, 
I think that story plays out slightly differently. But just, you know, more stories will come um, because this is the, the direction the Taliban are, are certainly taking with regard to women's rights in the country. Um, I think there are also narratives where you can see uh, in the U.S., whether or not women are in state by state willing to let their their rights to their own body uh, sort of go in a, in a march toward maybe maybe not something that's extreme, but it is on it is on a spectrum of where where we view rights uh, unequally uh, based on based on a gender. Um, so, yeah, thanks for bringing this, Nick. Yeah, it's a it's not a light topic, but I think it behooves us to stay informed especially because this is affecting some of the largest um, NGOs globally. And we'll continue, continue to follow this story. I'll, I'll point out that the article talks also about um, some woman-focused NGOs, um, particularly led by Afghan women, who are steaming ahead. They're rolling ahead. Um, and we wish them the, the best of luck for, for those incredible Truly, that is where change happens, right? That is where change happens. The actual community, the people govern, hit their breaking point. It isn't, you know, the, the U.S. setting up proxy governments and situations like that that don't align with the people. It is when the people say, no, we're done here. Uh, we've had enough. And, and something tells me when you push, you know, roughly half of your population uh, back underground after they have seen and tasted freedom and what equality looks like. Um, that is how a change actually happens. It is not through might from an external force. I agree. Um, one thing I just remembered, and then we'll move on, is um, actually uh, finances, essentially, of the whole country um, are under extremely strict sanctions by the United States government. And the humanitarian community um, has been steadfastly petitioning us to change those rules, um, to unlock these funds. Because yes, will it go to the Taliban? Yes, that is that bad? Yes, um, but the country needs access uh, to to finance. Um, so throwing that out there as well. All right, George, taking us back to our neck of the woods, uh, nonprofit and tech. Um, this one comes from IPWatchdog.com, and uh, it's a story about a company that I know you and I know well, OpenAI. Um, and the article goes into the, the program has its origins in the nonprofit world, um, but OpenAI, which has recently made news for releasing ChatGPT um, as well as GPT-3 and Dolly and other artificial uh, intelligence platforms you may have heard of, um, is currently being valued at $29 billion. Quite a valuation. George, what's the take on this? You know, this started as a nonprofit. And a nonprofit is the public benefit structure. We don't need to tell our listeners that. OpenAI's Open stated mission originally was artificial intelligence, by which we mean highly autonomous systems, outperforms humans at most economically viable work, benefits all humanity. That's what they were trying to make sure of. And actually started its life as an Elon Musk founded nonprofit. And the part here that kind of frustrates me a little bit is that they are having overwhelming success with their current chat GPT and GPT-3 uh, products and Dolly that generate images. We have courses on this. I think nonprofits should be using this immediately for purpose-driven solutions like 
writing emails, writing content, creating first drafts of uh, anything that you are literally typing out. This can do it and help you do it faster. Uh, it should be adopted. I'm a little sad to see that, you know, this, um, this nonprofit uh, for OpenAI, as soon as it sees a little bit of success, not massive success so far, uh, it suddenly turns around to, oh, let's go for profit and sell to the highest bidder. You know, and in doing so, you, you essentially forfeit your creative purpose, which was making sure that AI is for the benefit of all people instead of the benefit of the shareholders. That is fundamentally what you need. I'm not against nonprofits monetizing, monetizing part of their business. Literally, the point of the business was to protect the use of AI for public benefit. And I see this as a direct threat to, uh, to that uh, by, by forking it and sending it that way. So uh, we covered last week the story of Mastodon, which is turning down. It's a nonprofit. It's turning down funding to maintain the social platform public benefit mission that it has because it knows what happens when you bring in shareholders. You must increase their value, which means you must sell out somehow against the privacy of your users or that core point of the platform. Yes, there's alignment at times, but this, these are two different stories of major tech companies going two different directions. So that, that's the hot take. I will say, if you're a listener and you've not tried out, uh, you can try out chat GPT for free. And you will be amazed. And once you look at your screen for 10 seconds in amazement, uh, then you better figure out how this is going to impact you, your job, your work, and your organization, because it will. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next, uh, probably a lot sooner than a lot of us even realize. All right, George, it's that time. I'm out of feel good story. Yeah, I hope, hope I updated it. Oh, I did. I did. I updated it. We're in the clear, and I'm especially excited for this one because the perfect segue awaits us. This comes from the Washington Post, and this is about someone you've probably not heard of, but you maybe should. Uh, his name is Don Fire, and this man is a older student at George Mason University pursuing a degree in machine learning. But what makes Mr. Byer particularly interesting as a student at George Mason is that he is, in fact, a Democratic congressperson from the state of Virginia. So that's right. Uh, Don Byer, congressman from state from Virginia, is enrolling in classes in machine learning and AI uh, at George Mason University for a degree in it. Um, he's taking, I think, like a class or two a semester. While also doing governing on the side, um, Mr. Byer um, is on the Science Technology Committee within Congress that also oversees NASA and recognized um, on some lectures that he just attended the importance of this technology. And as a lawmaker, wants to get ahead of the seismic change that he believes uh, it's going to have on our society and technology. Um, and is is putting up the work himself uh, to learn more about it. I mean, this is, that's what public service is about. And, and that's why I love this story. 
Yeah, it's great. He's uh, 72 years old, as I think you may have mentioned, and showing that, you know, age is only a number. It's more about a mindset and make no mistake. There is a lot that I think is going to be coming onto the floor of, uh, of Congress to, to figure out various issues of the use of data, copyright, who owns the intellectual rights to words like these were large language models trained on trillions of, you know, data points that are not necessarily all public domain or meant to be in that public domain and its ability to uh, mimic uh, living artists and living writers and information is is alarmingly good. And so it's one of those things that, wait a minute, this is like too useful a tool to simply turn back the clock, right? Like we open Pandora's box here, this is going to be uh, woven into so many different products, but you, you know, there's some attribution questions. Gonna be messy. Good luck to you. All right, Nick. I got a question. No. Yeah, but uh, seriously though, why why are the Swiss such great donors? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but their flag certainly is a big plus. Yep, that's what you get for sticking it out to the end of the podcast. Thanks for staying with us. Leave us a rating, a review. Happy 2023. Hope things are going well for you. Talk to you later, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 